I need to say up front that the, the way in which this was planned was to do a one-session study on overcoming a divorce. I got uh, into this, Justin, you, you can appreciate this dilemma. I realized in the preparation for it that this needs to be in two parts. And I felt that I was just trying to put too much together for one time. So we're going to do this in two parts. I did not have an opportunity to get to um, Susanna to get this uh, information. So what you have in the handout will be, I think, a total of seven of these biblical principles to walk through to think about. But we're only going to take the first three. We're going to work with those. And I intend to uh, present a conclusion next week to this where I'm going to have some questions and answers. I'm going to supply a lot of questions and propose some answers. I will leave it open to those who wish to ask them, but there are just some areas, some issues um, that uh, lend themselves better to a little question and answer appendix at the conclusion of the study. So we're going to begin this in tonight with part one. That's what we're doing. I think the best way to begin is just for me to read, for us to read, if you will turn to Matthew in chapter 19. Matthew 19, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. There are, uh, I think, as I I call about seven, maybe seven or eight Passages that speak directly to divorce in the scriptures. When you begin to read the literature, examine the subject, there's some seven to nine of these. This is one of the those critical passages. Uh, and, and before I read, I can say to you, this is not a study of divorce per se. That would be certainly two or three parts. That deals with the biblical basis for or against and, and all of the issues. I'm going to deal with that to some extent, but my focus in this series on overcoming all of the issues that we've presented so far is to help those who are struggling with going through how, whatever the issue is here tonight, divorce, a divorce, and to think biblically about it, how to think biblically about it. That's what we're going to do. All right, follow with me now. I'm going to read Matthew 19, beginning verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. If you wanted to look to a map if it interests you. This is going, he's, he's not going directly south. He's going from Galilee over across the Jordan and go down the east side. And he's going to be in that area known as Perea. And this is where the, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to be, I, who knows, maybe they were following his entourage, but they're going to be waiting for him. Watch it as it unfolds. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. 
And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, I should call attention to the fact that where Jesus is geographically in the district of Herod Antipas, where he is is important to what's behind this question. Because this is the area, and under Herod Antipas's jurisdiction, was where John the Baptist was arrested and eventually lost his head over his outspokenness with regard to divorce and remarriage. And it would have been a much more uh, likely uh, place for the Pharisees to get Jesus caught in some kind of trap, bad publicity, some, some issue that could be raised against him in the district of that rule over by Herod Antipas, and because they are plotting the death of Jesus or what, what they need to do to get rid of him. So that's just a little background why this, this doesn't just come out of thin air. Well, and some of the Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. You recognize this as a quote from the book of Genesis where Jesus immediately takes them. That's highly significant in this discussion on divorce. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then said they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? They're picking up Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in verses 1 to 4, that was kind of the premier passage of their thought discussion with regard to divorce. They make a blunder from the get-go, and I don't know if you... uh, picked it up, or will pick it up, just from the reading, but they are already tipping their hand as to their lack of understanding, both of Genesis and its relationship to Deuteronomy 24. We'll come back to that. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning... It has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs 
who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Overcoming a divorce. This is for those, let me be sure you have included yourself in the, the, the designed audience for this. And I hope I've got everybody when I get through with this. This is for those who are not yet married. For even though not yet married, and with hopefully the right perspective on what marriage is, God's perspective, and even perhaps with a home where there has been, um, there's been stability and longevity in a marriage, it does not mean that you may not have to encounter it yourself in the future. How could it happen? You say, well, I don't. Who stands up here? I have been up here on this platform, at least another one that looked a little like this, that, uh, that yes, couples in preparation for marriage and in exchanging vows, they weren't there thinking through some prenuptial conditions uh, that how they can get out of this. But I'm sad to say that there has been a percentage of those married even in this building in the years past whose marriages fell upon the rocks and fell apart. Oh, you don't know. Then there are those who are married and you're not divorced. Good. And you think, wow, that's not even in my imagination. Good. And I hope it will stay that way. But I can tell you this, there can be surprises. There can be surprises. There can be things going on in marriages, in this assembly, which we know not of. Things may look peaceful and quiet and harmonious, but... Uh, to take a turn on a country music song, behind closed doors, they're not so good. And there are undertones of, uh, of, of uh, conflict and differences and pressures and tensions that unless attended to, they could lead you to a temptation for divorce which you had not intended. And then this study on overcoming a divorce is for those who are going through a process of divorce. I don't know of any here, but I do know of some personally, and it is for those. And it is for those who have been divorced. There are some of you who have been through a divorce. This is not to... <clears throat> try to create any, any guilt that's not necessary for those of you who have been through divorce is to help you, as all of us, to reflect upon what does the Lord Jesus Christ say about marriage and divorce and remarriage most, and how to overcome a divorce. Richard and Jane were married on a bluebird day in May. They had high hopes of settling into a happy life together in their newly adopted town where Richard's new job located him. Jane, 
took on part-time work as a receptionist at a nearby car dealership. Life got busy. Two children were born in their first four years. Friends, hobbies, work, child-rearing, and different interests began to gradually and unsuspectingly turn them into roommates rather than lovers. They weren't happy any longer. Their emotional ties no longer bound them together. They agreed upon a divorce. Lance and Jennifer met in their middle 20s at a church retreat for singles. They shared many of the same interests. They talked for hours about their hopes and dreams. After a year of dating, they became engaged, much to the light to the delight of their church family. They seemed so suited for one another. A church wedding topped it off with hundreds of celebrants, vows exchanged, and dreams of living happily ever after. However, Jennifer did not know that Lance had had a pornography problem before they met. Lance was a good-looking, athletic, and very intelligent young man. Women were attracted to him. Lance was heady with the attention and soon began to engage in sexual infidelities with other women. When Jennifer learned of Lance's sexual unfaithfulness, she was devastated. She filed for divorce. These are only representative, but I think they set before us what we've all known in one way or another through experience and perhaps in our family, extended families and friends, what can happen. I wish to take you through three of these biblical principles tonight. For the first of these, I need to have you turn to Psalm and 80, Psalm 86. Psalm 86. And as you do, here is why we're going there. Overcoming a divorce begins with a cry for God's mercy. My first two truth points tonight, and in this of the seven, have to do with one, the cry for mercy, and the other, pain and suffering. You say, why start there? Well, do I need to explain? Now, a person's heart is hard, and in divorces, we know that somebody's heart has gotten hard, that there has to be this encounter with God if there's going to be any kind of spiritual survival and nurture and change and help and recovery, overcoming. So look with me to Psalm in 86. This is a very instructive psalm. It's, it's one of, I think, about 60 or 70 of the psalms that uh, are like this. It is known as a lament psalm. And lament psalms are, as you would expect, it's about, it's, we might sing, the blues. It's a sad song. Well, it's a song about sadness. It's a song about trials. It's a song about difficulty. And... What you find in this psalm unfolding, though we're not going to be able to treat it at length in an, ex, in an expository way, is that David is in dire straits. It's a time of great difficulty. 
He is surrounded by enemies. David is always having to contend with people who didn't like him and people who wanted to kill him and people who were doing anything they could to set aside him as the king. So there were conspiracies. What he does in this psalm is that David goes before the Lord with, let me read just, I'll have to spot read it. I can't take time to read the entire psalm, but let me, let me get an opening and closing of this psalm. So let's at least get the bookends for it. Are you, psalm 86. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. For there are ever a needy person. It is someone who is locked into the struggles, the pain, and the suffering of divorce. Do preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O thou, my God, save thy servant who trust in thee. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to thee I cry all day long. I'll pause here to point out something quite instructive for the in, in knowing how to pray, there are actually a total of eight arguments that David enlists in going to God in prayer. You've heard this before, this holy argumentation with going to God and God. I, and when you get a hold of God, how do you talk to God in an intimate way? You see God. You, you push yourself in thoughts that are in harmony with God has revealed him about himself. What you find David doing is that, Lord, I know you're a God who gives mercy. You're a God who is able to answer, and you're good even when times are not good. I think that's what really sounds out here in the first five verses. And nothing could be more important to sinful men and women than to find mercy with God. Now let's go to the end of the psalm. Watch him. You can see he says, turn to me. I get it at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant thy strength to thy servant. Save the son of thy handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because thou, O Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. And I should read verse 15 because it is especially important in the psalm. But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Here's what's going on. That God has made us with a need for him. That's the only, if you want to get to the bottom line, that's the ultimate, the only real need we have is for him. Not that we don't have desires and the and legitimately so for fulfillment in various areas of life. But we need God. We do. And he doesn't owe us anything. And God is sovereign over all our needs, all our desperation, all our difficulties. You look in verses 6 to 10, and you can see it unfold where he says, God, you're great. And no one is greater than you, and I am before you. And you can see from beginning with, or you, you would if you, we had time to unfold it, in verses 7 and verses 10 and verse 13 and verse 17, there are four other arguments in addition to the four that have that begun, that began this psalm. Arguments with God. Oh, Lord, I know that you can. You hear my prayer. 
And Lord, I come to you, and he's asking for mercy, mercy. And watch what unfolds in this psalm when this plead for mercy. You notice in verses 11 through 13 that David, in his desperation for God's compassion upon him, helping him, helping him in his affliction, that he needed God to teach him. I, I need illumination, Lord, to be able to take the scriptures and for me to see things that I need to see and understand how to sort things out in life. And God, that God is to be glorified through undivided devotion to him. Oh, and if there's ever a need for wisdom, it's when a person is going through the horrible experience of a divorce. Oh, there is no area of life that is, goes untouched by divorce. Things that I think a lot of people who pursue divorce at the beginning, they don't realize how tearing and how fracturing it is for the totality of life and how you're going to need such skill to know how to navigate through all of the issues as we'll see. And also there is, that comes up in this psalm, is there is this desire of David for God to be merciful, which tells us a tremendous amount about what's in the heart of hearts of David, namely that it takes us to the question, what do you want? What do you want? David wanted God. And, well, what do you want? Do you want prosperity? Do you want vindication? Do you want to win in court? Do you want personal safety? Oh, there are a lot of wants that begin to come up to the surface when you're going through a divorce. To be right, to win arguments, to get your fair share, if they're dividing of the assets, to determine who gets custody and how much and when. And what about the long-term arrangements as you go through the settlement process? What about um, how will those be divided and anticipated? Everything from uh, alimony to Social Security issues. No part of life goes untouched. Oh, Lord, how can I think my way through this Christianly? And it tells me also, it brings up, as any testing will, tests always do this. They bring up to the surface things like the lees. I mean that which sits at the bottom of the jar and, you know, and things settle down and you shake it and you see it come up. And so we think we should know from this psalm, and I'll conclude it here, that we need to know how to talk to God, how to talk to God. And how should God answer my prayers? And when you get into this emotional dust storm of a divorce, where it is literally, it is hard to think at times. You get so weary mentally and spiritually, emotionally. And so David lays out, that's the value of the Psalms, by the way, and why many of us have found them to be in a, such a suitable recourse when we go through just such difficult times that we are just absolutely mentally exhausted and we don't know how to put words together to pray. The Psalms then give us the words and the means by which we can go to God and bear our soul to him and talk to him. That's one of, the, one of the main reasons why the Psalms are there. And so there are these ways in which we can talk 
to God these arguments because, as I said, they're going to be memories, and your mind's going to get stirred up with memories. You begin to look through, you begin to look through picture albums that you thought were going to be yours to look through when you were in later in life with the one that you had married, and you suddenly find out or you realize that, wait a minute, I probably won't have a 50th wedding anniversary unless you live to be 100 or more. And so you have memories to deal with. You have offenses. And offenses begin to come up which you haven't even thought about. And they're created as you go through the process. And children, your children, or her children, his children, our children. And then you get a blended marriage if you go into a second marriage. And his, hers, mine, and and those all those complications. And then the question regarding remarriage. Do I have the right to remarry? Should I remarry? And dating. Dating, whenever it comes along, whether it's 10 years after you've been married or 20 or 30 years, dating at this time of life, it's a different kind of field out there. It's not as it was when I was in my early 20s. Things have changed. I mean, we're not surprised at that. But Lord, I need wisdom. I need you that I don't make a mistake, that I don't, that I, that I don't get into situations where I lose my discernment. And then you get into the whole legal aspect of it. Lawyer, a lawyer or lawyers talking to the right kind of lawyer, being careful that you're not led astray by a lawyer in the whole area of you know, legalities and such in courts. There's just no end to these things. So I begin with this Psalm 86 to just say to anyone who is working through a divorce, has been through a divorce, don't let it drive a wedge between you and God, but go to him and seek him with your whole heart. God gives grace to the humble. You resist the proud, but go to him and seek his mercy. He is a compassionate God. He has not turned his back on you because you're going through a divorce. Now, there may be things that you need to address before him, maybe some repentance and confession of sin, but he's a merciful God. He loves you. And do you know what? God knows a little bit what it's like to be married to somebody who's unfaithful. Have you thought of that? And he knows the pain and suffering. For there was Israel who who, um, was unfaithful to him, And you can see this all over the place in the prophets where God bears his soul through the prophets and God uses this strong language through the mouths of the prophets. Like you've gone after these idols, these harlots, you've committed adultery. And God was pained by this. He knows. He knows. And we have a Savior who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He can sympathize with us. You understand? All right, let's go to the second of these. Overcoming a divorce is a call to pain and suffering. Oh, indeed it is. I, do I need to remind you? Any of you who have been through this with a loved one or been through a divorce yourself, you know it is a mountain of pain and suffering. It was the Puritan Richard Baxter who said, Suffering so unbolts the door of the heart 
that the word hath the easier entrance. Ah, you mean that it is possible that my pain and suffering through divorce could be the opportunity for God to meet me in ways that I would not have met him and know him in ways that I would not have known him? It's good for me, the psalmist says, that I was afflicted that I might know your statutes. Psalm 119 and 71. Let me, this is not a course on pain and suffering. I have a full course on that. Some of you have taken it. And it's, it's, uh, but let, let me just, let's, let's take some of the issues that are germane to this issue of, of divorce. I'll say this first of all, that all suffering in the Christian life is for the purpose of making us holy. Yes, even going through a divorce. Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 5 through 12. D.A. Carson commenting on this section in Hebrews 12, he says that God stands behind all our suffering to use it to bring about holiness of life. Now the point in Hebrews 12 is explaining pain and suffering to people who are enduring it And that it is for the purpose of what? It is a child-rearing process God uses to refine us, to make us in conformance to the image of Christ. And so all of our difficulties, whether there are losses associated with a divorce, oh, and you've got to think that way when you think of divorce, losses, physical health or financial changes, car troubles, Leaking roofs, pets that die, friends who distance themselves from you. All of these things and many others are to change the way we think about life and God, purify our motives, establish new habits, and renew our hope for the future. When we stall out in pain and suffering, and turn it into, may I say, the intoxication of self-pity. It's easy to happen when you go through a great trial like a divorce, to begin to feel sorry for yourself. This is reason, if I may say, on the side, is why many, when they go through divorce or have been through one, a church can be a very lonely place. What do you do? You sit around, what do you see? You see couples sitting together. And, of course, it's you you understand that you're not seeing everything that's going on, but it looks like they may be happy. They may be sitting close to one another or not or whatever. You don't know what's going on, but still, you see. And you think, I guess people have got it together around here. Where do I belong? Do I belong here? So... Don't forget, pain and suffering is to conform us to Christ. God has purposes in it. And secondly, suffering is for the purpose of developing spiritual endurance. Yes, divorce, helping to endure. Uh, Count it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What is endurance? Is that endurance, I like this, I like this uh, 
statement by D.A. Carson. He says, It is the staying power of our faith is neither demonstrated nor developed until it is tested by suffering. Did you get staying power? That endurance, spiritual endurance, it's the ability to put God's word into practice day after day after day after day. You get up, you deal with the issues that come today. You talk to the lawyer today, you talk to him tomorrow. You talk to your ex-spouse or one who is to be your ex-spouse, you have to communicate. And then you get, we haven't even considered the in-laws and how they enter into the discussions for good or for ill. And so spiritual endurance is courageous It's consistently working through one's disappointments and pain and suffering in a way that pleases God. That's what it is. It's not grim resoluteness. You're just going to hang in. Unbelievers can do that. But rather it is that um, resilience, if we had the time, this word that's used here for endurance in often many places, uh, the noun hupomene, the verb hupomeno, it's the idea of this word. It's very, uh, one of my favorite words in the New Testament. It, it's used outside the New Testament of, a, of a, a plant or a tree that flourishes in harsh environments. Just the roots go and do what they have to do. You've seen places like that, haven't you? You say, how in the world does that tree survive up there at 8,000 feet? <laughs> 10,000 feet. And this is endurance. And that it's especially important during trials because staying power creates the environment for maturity, see? If you're, if you're on one day and off 10, on one day and off 10, you're going to lose ground. You're going to get more conflicted, more confused. I would say you're flirting with probably depression and hopelessness. There's got to be staying power. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. Daily endurance adds up to faithfulness. And the spiritual endurance, it's standing strong, refusing to indulge in self-pity. When your children become more loyal to your ex-spouse because he or she gives them more things than you can give them. Oh, my. Oh, my. Does that become a great soul struggle? And dealing with cynicism and disappointment. But there's another aspect to suffering here. It's this. Suffering is for the purpose of developing spiritual wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? It's this God-given understanding of how to work your way through trials. God's way. It's a skill. How do I think about that? What should I do? I've got to weigh this out. What's... What's good, what's better, what's best? It's that kind of thing. It's coping, it's coping with the reality of a new set of financial circumstances in a divorce. Oh, and they do present themselves in divorces. Totally new playing field when it comes to this. Um, it comes to wisdom is needing. Suddenly, maybe you become a single parent. Male or Female. I know of situations where there have been divorces, and the, 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 the husband has primary custody. Now, that would present some special demands, would it not? 
So you become a single parent. Um, Your ex-spouse doesn't fulfill his or her financial responsibilities. There's There's supposed to be a check coming. And then you get into the squabbling because, potentially so, because the check coming, maybe the ex-spouse says, well, why am I sending that money over there? It's for the children. But the way I see he or she is living, it's not for them. It's for her. Oh, she went and got a new car. I thought this was for the children. Well, and so then you get into the grudge match and revenge, that kind of thing. And then the dating thing. Well, that brings up all kinds of potential uh, issues for jealousy and anger. And do you think you may need God's wisdom and the stamina necessary to work through this kind of thing? You see your ex with someone else, and to really exacerbate it, you see them you see them in a pub in a public place. Oh my! And you're looking for security. You're looking for comfort. And you begin to reflect on your past. Divorce has a way of doing that to you, doesn't it? You begin to think, how did I get into it? How did I get to this? I didn't plan for this. Did I? What those decisions? What about? And so you can really begin to rummage through your past. And I'm not saying you should to this extent, but you can think, well, why didn't I see that? Oh, oh, we dated, and he he or she said that or did that. I didn't pick up on that. Oh, if I had just been a little bit more discerning, and I hadn't uh, uh, been in such a hurry, oh, maybe I could have avoided this. Uh, So so you get into this second-guessing, and, Lord, how do I think? What's the best way to do that? And then one other issue here with regard to suffering. Suffering is the opportunity to experience the power of God in our times of weakness. Times of weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7 through 10. Well, let me say this about what Paul is exploring there in 2 Corinthians 12. He has been put down on his back with probably some kind of serious physical, we say this thorn in the flesh. You've heard that terminology, if you're not. And Paul is referring to some some incredibly difficult circumstance that's perennial in his life. I mean, it may have been a, some chronic physical condition. We don't know for sure. And he's floored by it. And here's this man with all kind of energy for God. You know, that's a tough bind to be in, isn't it? You're, you, have this, you have this energy for God, and you're limited by your physical circumstances. And it can give you the heebie-jeebies. And you say, oh, oh, I could do this, I could do that, I could go here, I could be more useful to God. Lord, you know what I could do. What I, I could, oh, oh, Lord, but I can't, oh. And Paul comes around in that play, passage so that God will use his, Paul's weakness, to demonstrate his power, to use you in ways, even when you're not doing the things that you are skilled to do or gifted to do, but God can use you in extraordinary ways. You rely upon that. Um, For example, in a divorce, you're bone-tired physically and emotionally, and it's time you've got to have a conversation with your ex-spouse. And you know, you know that when you're tired 
you get exhausted. That's not your best thinking time. And you're apt to say things that you know you shouldn't say. You just know, you know yourself. And so, well, but you know that there's got to be a conversation. It's over the children. Or it's over custody or whatever. Some financial issue. Um, if, it's a, if you're a, a, a female in this situation and you suddenly you've got responsibilities with things, mechanical things, to fix things, to do things that a man ordinarily would do in a home, and you've got to deal with them, and you've got to talk, and, you're, and your ex is dating someone else and just having a good time, and you're not, and, oh, Lord, your grace for my time of weakness. Help me, Lord, to know what it is to experience your grace, enablement, to frame my thoughts, to choose the right words, to watch the tone of my voice, to not pick a fight, to be, to be careful and let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but such as word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Memorize that. I've been working on that one lately. <laughs> Ephesians 5.29 and just go there. Now, thirdly and finally, it's not the conclusion. I have a short conclusion, but let's go to this. Overcoming a divorce unfolds through a biblical understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, here's where I will, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 19, I'm going to be referencing some uh, issues that... Uh, that come up in these 12 verses that we read through a little while ago. In this question that Jesus gets with regard to divorce, I want to start off by just affirming, saying what Jesus says about marriage. That's where he starts. He doesn't start where they want to start. He starts where he wants to start. Let's talk about marriage. That, namely, that God invented the institution of marriage, and it's to be permanent. That's why he goes to Genesis. Now, immediately, a Christian view of marriage, that it is to be a permanent, you know, a monogamous, not serial monogamy, but it is to be a permanent relationship. And if we are ever living in a time where countercultural Christianity is up to bat, it's now. Because this is not where the culture is. And there was a time you could get just a little bit of support from the culture. You don't anymore. What's the cultural definition of marriage? How do most people think that marriage is a socially devised custom invented to support emotional ties? I feel for you, you feel for me. Let's get married. Well, then, one day, I don't feel for you or you don't feel for me. So it's over. Because the sovereignty of feelings in our culture. So such a view is theologically rootless. And it's shaped essentially by moral relativity. Are there, there are no rights or wrongs. Whatever works best for a group, whatever works best for you, we'll construct our own truth. Okay? So listen, you're not, there's no tie that really binds you here. If your emotional ties are severed, you're free. You can go and graze and do what you please. And that's the culture. I will say just a few things about, though, 
not we don't have time to fully pull this out, but you know, there has been a change, and for you who are younger, and I'm not trying to patronize you, please, here, I'm just, just trying to give you a little, little reflection on history that you may not get. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, as I think about it, where would you get a perspective on history through, the, uh, through a Christian lens? If you're, if you're in college or you're reading contemporary literature or magazines and newspapers, it's going to be skewed. But I will say this, um, that, yes, there are an increasing number of divorces, couples cohabiting, same-sex marriage, but you, you rarely see happy marriages uh, if ever they're presented on movie, in movies and television. I mean, just let's face it, evil is more entertaining than good. It's all about cheating. I mean, where would country music be if it weren't for cheating? <laughs> uh, and movies, why they, they seem to draw... They, 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 draw people, they draw our sinful hearts, as I think what they do. I, it, it, it's, it's, not a, it's a shame to us, but we're all like that. I've been like this. You find yourself, you're watching something, and you find yourself, you're identifying with sin. And you're hoping the person who's sinning, like, this is a movie way back. It was Bridges of Madison County. Um, I didn't see it, but I read about it. it was, I think it was at Clint Eastwood. Didn't he show up as the good-looking guy? And it was Meryl Streep, I think, who was living with kind of a dud. You know, that scenario, whether it's Robert Redford and Meryl Streep or Clint Eastwood, and, you know, they get the combinations. And the husband is sort of a doofus. He's a loser. And she's sad. And, and then here comes this the tall, dark, and handsome stranger. And so everybody gets caught up in their imagination. Yes, yes, oh, find your fulfillment. Here he is. Oh, your husband, throw him under the butts. So what? Aren't there, now you put it out there like that, it sounds kind of, it's, it's perverted. <laughs> That's not the way it's supposed to be. But I'm just simply saying that when you get decades of these kinds of stories, whether in literature or TV and movies, that you're drawn in, imagination's powerful, and you get in your imagination what it's like to be in the shoes of this person, and it's usually the heroes are the people who are, well, what are they? Movie stars. They, hey, I can identify with this person better than I can with this person. All right, so your imagination's in it, and you're hooked. We've all had it happen to us. And this is what changes perspectives. This is what changes values. This is why then people, when they come to a crisis in life, go off on the deep end because they're following what they've been indoctrinated with in the imagination. All right, now let's get back to Matthew 19. Jesus emphasized, you notice in verse 4, that what Jesus emphasized was that marriage was God's idea and it was to be permanent. And he took the Pharisees back to Genesis in chapter 1 and 2. Now, here is what was cooking. There was a theological controversy. And uh, it is a really good thing that I said there's two part, there are two parts to this. Um, that I'll just, I'm just going to tee the ball up for you. It looks like I'm not even going to get to I'll just give you a preview of what we'll do with next week. But there were two schools of thought, two rabbinical schools, 
uh, happens today with maybe a preacher who writes a book and this preacher, theologian, writes a book. And, you know, hey, I'm for, I'm for. Uh, well, they had Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Shammai, his view on divorce that you're not to divorce your wife except for unfaithfulness. Now watch how that's framed. Not to divorce your wife except for unfaithfulness. That the assumption was in the school of Shammai, because you're going to find Jesus, according to some, and I think there's a good case to be made for this, that Jesus doesn't agree with either. And why is this? If Shammai is the more conservative, he says it's, I'll explain it later. Then there's the school of Hillel. This is the, the liberal, uh, this is the open, almost open divorce. You can get divorce your wife for anything. She burns the biscuits. Hey, I'm tired. You didn't even learn to cook biscuits. We've been married three weeks and you still burn the biscuits. And you're divorced, you're divorced, you're divorced. You're out of here, get the legal papers signed, and you're done. Well, so Jesus is asked, where are you going to come down on this? And where Jesus goes, now I'm into giving you a preview uh, here, um, condense it. Where Jesus goes with this is that he goes into Deuteronomy 24. And why he does that is because the, the, the rabbinical schools had taken Deuteronomy 24 to say, to turn it into a command to get a divorce. There's no command there. There's no command there. Even the school of Shammai had turned unfaithfulness into a command to get one if there is unfaithfulness. There's no command to get a divorce. And so Jesus clears that up. He goes through that. And then he says this, and he explains the fact that why it was allowed because there was a regulation. Deuteronomy 24 gives a regulation of divorce. You know, the Old Testament offers this to us, doesn't it? That God regulates things with which he disapproves. He, he did that with slavery in the Old Testament. Polygamy regulated these cultural, social things they weren't the ideal in which he was not setting his stamp of approval upon, but they were regulated. That's really the issue with regard to uh, Deuteronomy 24. And you can, uh, you can understand this, how it works, can't you? That we, did, we went through uh, prohibition. Uh, we, I mean, our society did back in the 20s. We're going to make, you know, alcoholic beverages will be declared illegal. Well, what did we find out? That didn't work. <laughs> you have to regulate it. Does that mean the government wants everybody to drink? No, but just to regulate. So you get the principle. Now, here's where then Jesus goes. He restates it and makes it, he states it and makes it clear. He says, verse 9, But I say, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, there's the linchpin. What I'm going to present to you and why I'm doing this is because if indeed the divorce is because of infidelity, how do you face it? Do you have a right to get a divorce for infidelity? You can see the issues here, can't you? If you're a Christian and you're serious about God in the Bible, now, if you're not a Christian, this is, hey, 
what's all the fuss about? Who cares? But if you want to honor God, you've got to, you look in the scriptures and you think, what do I do? Do I have a right to divorce? There are some Christians, respected people, they're not bad folks, and who look at the scriptures and say, no divorce, no remarriage is allowed, period. I do not happen to think that that's what the scriptures teach. There are those who say that you can get a divorce, but no remarriage. And then there are those who say, and I'm in this company, that there, is, there are grounds for divorce, infidelity, porneia, which is the word he uses, translated immorality, which is, encompasses any exchange of sexual affection outside of, with anyone other than your marital partner. It could, vary, it could go all the way from, pardon the, the extreme to which I have to express this, it can go all the way to adultery, heterosexual adultery. It could be homosexuality. It could be bestiality. Um, or transgender behavior. So it encompasses, parnea encompasses that kind of thing. And Jesus is except for that. And I take that exception clause at face value. I think that's the clearest. Uh, I'm going deep in going into what we need to do next week. So let me just stop there. And what I intend to do next week is this. I will we'll go through the matter of divorce. Um, if Is it permissible in the case, uh, in any case, or just in infidelity? We'll briefly touch on that. And then go through the matter of remarriage. This becomes very important. Even if, you see, if there is not infidelity, what's that tell us? And you get a divorce, or as we hear today, we grew apart. But we just don't like one another any longer. Well, what would be the biblical direction for that? All right, I'll make two statements and I'll close. We'll get back to this. I'm going to say to, again to all of us, let's give ourselves to ensuring the permanency of our marriages, please. Just take this, again, take this seriously. Marriage vows made to God, to one another. Guard your heart, your marriage. Watch yourself. Watch situations that are rife with temptation. Working outside the home, mixing with, you're in a place where men working with women, women working with men, and and, things can happen. Let's... Let's commit ourselves to we, we're not going to grow apart. And I may be speaking to some here tonight. There is an infidelity. And there is no, at this point, there's no immediate danger. But if the truth be known, you're growing apart. And you are not really close like you should be. You live your own lives you don't discuss things of mutual importance and such. Watch our hearts. Watch our marriages. And then secondly, for every problem divorce solves, it creates hundreds more. Though it doesn't solve everything. It, it, it will solve something for infidelity in that case. But, I mean, you, okay, that's enough. I'm over time. All right, I've just stirred the pot, and we'll come to this and conclude it next week. And since we're over time, I won't 
We'll just save the grave. By the way, if you have questions, if you want to email them to me, I'm fair game. Uh, I'm going to write this list out. If you want to text them to me, um, I can give you my text, you know, my, my number. If you're interested uh, in texting, just do 404-391-9139. And uh, if you have a text and a question, and I'll, I'll incorporate questions into the conclusion next week. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that you've protected so many marriages represented here tonight. And we've not brought any public dishonor to your name because of your grace, mercy. And Father, for that one that's listening to this, who's in the throes of divorce, who is in pain, as someone has said to me recently, divorce is like surgery without without anesthesia. Oh, Lord, administer your mercy comfort, and the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.